0: Now, let's say we only have four accounts of music from the 60s, and all oh, and, they, and, they all, and all four of them agree that the Beatles are the most important and preeminent act of the 60s. They'd all be wrong, but that would tell us about what everybody well, thought sly, in that era.
1: Well, you're a sly guy, and so I don't know whether Seth should ring the bell for the good point you made or for the heresy of saying that they're all wrong.
0: Hello, and welcome to another scattered, covered, smothered, and chunked episode of On the Journey. And uh, we hope that you've been enjoying this series that we've been doing on Christian Authority. Uh, we have been talking a lot about, you know, the Holy Spirit sustaining the church. Today, we're going to finally uh, talk about the Pope. Uh, so it could be an exciting discussion. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. Come visit us at chnetwork.org. Come especially... Uh, If you have questions and want to start conversations or join them to our community, which is community.chnetwork.org. It's a closed social network uh, where we try and keep out people who are mean. So come see us. Ken, how are you?
1: I am. I'm fantastic. I am eager and energetic. And I'm sorry to have to um, let the crowd down, but we're actually not going to talk about the Pope. You said today we're going to talk about the Pope. I mean, we're going to lay some foundations for moving in that direction. And we're going to talk about Peter.
0: So that's what we're going to talk about. So you're saying we're talking about the Pope.
1: Yeah, but we're not using <laughs> the word Pope. We're not going to use the word All right. Pope. So
0: we're going to put the kibosh on all use of the word Pope from this point <laughs> through the rest of the episode. All right. Outlaw. But it's we're outlaw. going to talk about Peter a lot, but before we do that, let's just catch everybody up to where we are.
1: Okay. Well, in our last episode, go back and watch it. Go back and listen. What we focused on was the question of the Holy Spirit's leading in the post-apostolic church. And we walked through, I think, pretty carefully, some of the reasons that it made sense for the early Christians to believe that the Holy Spirit was leading the church in its development of the hierarchy after the apostles had passed away, as well as in its preservation and transmission of the truth. Now, this is what I did, Matt. After this, I spent a few minutes this past week just sort of flipping through the section of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. That is the section that speaks directly to the issue of the transmission of divine revelation. That is how the divine revelation has been transmitted within the church and i was taken by how often just how often the role of the holy spirit is emphasized so you know just listen to a few of these paragraphs because i think this is a great way of tying together so much that we've said so far in this epi- i mean in this series but also this focus on the spirit just listen in paragraph 77 in order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church the apostles left bishops as their successors. They gave them their own position of teaching authority. Indeed, the apostolic preaching, which is expressed in a special way in the inspired books, was to be preserved in a continuous line of succession until the end of time. And then, this living transmission is accomplished in the Holy Spirit. Paragraph 78, this living transmission accomplished by the Holy Spirit is called tradition paragraph 81 holy trans i mean holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of god which has been entrusted to the apostles by christ the lord and the holy spirit it transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that enlightened by the spirit of truth they may faithfully preserve expound and spread it abroad by their preaching paragraph 86 this teaching office is not above the word of god but serves it Teaching only what has been handed on to it, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It draws from this one deposit of faith everything which it presents for belief as divinely revealed. And then one more, paragraph 95. It is clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the Church are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others. Working together, each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, they each contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. How do you like that?
0: I like that well, pretty well, uh, Ken. And just to sort of give people a little perspective, you were talking about paragraphs 77 through 95 of the mm-hmm. Catechism. If you've ever opened the Catholic Catechism, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, there are thousands of paragraphs. We're just in the double digits. Mm-hmm. This is like front and center. This is how mm-hmm. the Catechism even kicks off. It says, if you want to understand why we even put the rest of the Catechism inside yeah. this book, it's because of what mm-hmm. we understand about Christian authority, and we're going to start the Catechism by explaining that. So that's, yes. that's where it stands in the order of things if you ever pick up a Catechism.
1: Right. It's laying the foundation that what we believe is based on divine revelation. And, and now how was divine revelation? How has it been transmitted within the church? How has it been preserved intact? In, intact? And that's what these paragraphs are all about. And the, the thing that I draw from this, I guess, that I really want to communicate, though, is that the Catholic Church is not claiming and has never claimed some innate Uh, you know, braininess, you know, or brilliance or authority or anything like that or ability. Instead, the church is simply saying that the Holy Spirit Jesus promised would lead the apostles into the truth continued. That's the word. Continued to lead the church into the truth after the apostles. Remember when Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room, I will not leave you as orphans. Well, what the church believes is that Jesus didn't. He didn't leave his church orphaned. I mean, think about this. just sort of hammering this from a number of sides. We trust the Holy Spirit to have worked through the people of God in the Old Testament to preserve the inspired writings of the prophets. There's no way to demonstrate this empirically. There's no way on earth you and I are going to go by and build some historical empirical argument proving that the Old Testament is inspired. We trust the Holy Spirit to have led we trust the Holy Spirit to have done the same thing of working through sinful men like the apostles to give us an inspired New Testament. And secondly, to have worked through the church's ordained leadership to recognize the right books and collect them into a canon. There's no way to prove that the book of Hebrews is inspired on historical grounds or anything like that. And so the question arises, why should we not trust that the Holy Spirit continued to work through the church's ordained leadership, the bishops as successors to the apostles, but also the presbyters with him, also the people of God in general with him, to preserve the apostolic faith, to develop it, and to hand it down intact. This is what Father Francis Sullivan um, says in his book again that I've been using, Magisterium, Teaching Authority in the Catholic Church. Father Francis Sullivan explains how much sense it makes to believe this, and he bases his argument on the canon again. Listen to what he says. If our confidence that the Holy Spirit must have guided the second and third century church in its discernment of the writings that were going to be normative for its faith, okay, if this confidence justifies our acceptance of the New Testament as inspired scripture, that is, our confidence that the Spirit of God was leading the church, it seems to me that we are justified in being equally confident that the Holy Spirit must have guided that second and third century church in its recognition of of its bishops as the rightful and authoritative teachers, whose decisions about matters of Christian doctrine would be normative for its faith.
0: Yeah, there's a there's and, a lot in that, yeah. um, and you know, part of it is you know when you look around the denominational landscape and the denominations that you and I both were mm-hmm. part of, you as an American Baptist, me as a Nazarene, Free Methodist, and and other things, um, there was a sense in which, you know, you could disagree with the denomination and disagree with the tradition that the denomination had. And you could say, well, we don't believe that anymore. We think that we should refocus on this. Uh, But that was done with full knowledge of what it was that we were refuting. When you look at the historical record of the church, um, there is a full knowledge of what has been handed on. And anybody who is teaching something different than that is 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 condemned by folks like St. Irenaeus, as you'll see later on, they say, no, there's there's this sense among the church that, no, mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. have a duty to preserve what was passed on to us. There's not any kind of saint or doctor of the church or father of the church who's like, well, the apostles were actually mistaken on this point, and so we need to, you know, redirect. No, there's this sense right. that we've got to carry this forth, uh, sometimes at the cost of our own lives.
1: Yeah, and Yes, yes, yes. and and i I think of the way that the early ecumenical councils are treated as well, they're not treated as the suggestions of the bishops at that time and, and and yet, of course, since scripture alone is uh you know is our rule of faith and practice, anyone is free to go back and study scripture and really ultimately decide for themselves. It's not treated that way. I mean, think about the Council of Nicaea in three twenty five. Are we justified, I guess I'm asking, are we justified in having confidence that the Holy Spirit was leading the church through the bishops here to the truth of who Jesus is as God and man?
0: Not a new truth, by the way, but no, leading them no, to no, double no. down on what the church believes and say, no, this is yeah, the deposit yes. of faith. This is the and historic And it thing. and
1: say, this is something that must be held. Yes. Right. Or, or, Or think about the Council of Constantinople in 381. Are we justified again in having confidence that the Holy Spirit was leading the church through its ordained leadership, once again, to the truth of the personhood and full deity of the Holy Spirit, or is this something that ultimately believers can disagree on? Uh, that you know, someone could study the New Testament and say, no, you know, the Holy Spirit is a force; it's not really, it's not really a God, and could form a, a denomination based on that. No, in, in fact, and Protestants don't treat it that way either we view these as being formally defined and decided. Now, of course, this doesn't continue. Uh, how about the councils of Rome, Hippo, and Carthage in the late fourth century that decided the canon? Are we justified in having confidence that the Holy Spirit was leading this church through its bishops to the correct canon? I mean, this is the same church, these are the same bishops that were leading the church in the Council of Nicaea, in Constantinople, in, um, in the, the Council of Ephesus in, uh, in, in 431, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 to the, to the doctrine of the Trinity, correct understanding of God as three and one. Are we justified in having confidence? There's no way to demonstrate on merely historical grounds that those 27 books are, are inspired revelation. Once again, if we don't have confidence in the leading of the Holy Spirit, then I would think that that question should be an open question. And there are many Protestants who treat it that way, I mean, uh, you know, that that treat the canon as an open question. Because as you know, those councils decided on the 27 books we have, but they also decided on the longer Old Testament canon that the Catholic Church holds, the same councils. And therefore, within Protestantism, there's a view that, well, on the New Testament, they were right. On the Old Testament, they were wrong.
0: Yeah, and let's say that uh, you are... Um, well, let's say that you're one of the Christian groups that believes that the whole church fell away after the death of the last apostle. Um, so you've got an apostate church that's doubling down on the true humanity and true divinity of Christ. You got an apostate church that's deciding that the Holy Spirit should be referred to as a person by everybody all the time, right? right. Um, you got a Holy, uh, uh, you got a, a church that's an apostate church that's deciding on the canon of Scripture. But let's say you move it up even further. Let's say you believe, like I kind of had a general impression of, that in 325, mm-hmm. when Constantine kind of helps organize the Council of Nicaea, that's proof that it's a, that's the state has taken over and the church has no more authority. Right. It's still over 100 years before you get a solid canon that is established fully by the church. So, I mean, and I still, mm-hmm. to this day, Ken, I mean, just to <coughs> tell you my perspective now, I still am like, you know, kind of iffy about what it looks like when the church and the state are hanging out with one another, right? Bad decisions right. were made, um, bad alliances were made, you know, it happens every time the church and the state get together. But that doesn't mean that the church is stripped of its authority to teach um, on matters of faith and morals. That stays strong.
1: Yeah, and and I think that as an, as an evangelical Protestant, um, I didn't know it at the time, I didn't really think about it at the time, but I was kind of in a strange place where... Where I believed that the, that the decisions made at, at Nicaea 325, Constantinople 381, Ephesus 431, uh, Chalcedon 451, And even those uh, councils that put together at least the New Testament, you know, I was trusting that those decisions were so firm that in a way, you couldn't even be called a Christian if you don't accept those basic you know uh, decisions. And yet the church that made those decisions is exactly the same church that is teaching baptismal regeneration, teaching infant baptism, teaching the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, is referring to the Lord's table as an altar upon which a sacrificial offering is made within the church, the same church that believes in apostolic succession. It's the same, you know what I mean? So it's like the same church that is laying down these foundational decisions that everyone agrees on is exactly the same church that... um, as an evangelical, I would have said was a apostate. Yeah, and laying down most of those doctrines.
0: decisions and most of those pronouncements, uh, again, not new pronouncements, but uh, but yeah. formally defining uh, these things long before they get around to formally defining which books yeah. belong in the New Testament.
1: Which is a point you enjoy making, I've noticed. I, okay, I, but I, look, I love it
0: It's it, because it's I was like completely blind to it, so I feel like I have to like scold my past self about it a lot
1: good go ahead Scold away yeah yeah bad you're, math you're you know beat your inner child you know he will not die <laughs> anyway quoting proverbs <laughs> okay let's hit this from the other direction by asking a couple of rhetorical questions really why would jesus ascend to the right hand of the father having become lord of heaven and earth king of kings send the holy spirit to lead his apostles into all the truth if he had no intention of preserving the church in the truth after the apostles if essentially as soon as the apostle died the church the church would be reduced to a bunch of local congregations trying to get bibles together and then reading their bibles and doing their best to figure out what what they ought to teach and believe or why would jesus pray father make them one even as we are one bring them to perfect unity so that the world may know that you have sent me if he had no intention of providing the means on earth by which the church could possibly remain one, as it has not been able to remain one uh, over the last 500 years. Or why would, would we it, not
0: have a prophecy from Christ that says uh, every single one of my followers will fall away and after a time I will come back and restore a new order with a new people or something like Because you would yeah. as as prophetic as Jesus is on a bunch of other things you know why is there no prophecy that there will be a a falling away of all you know i mean you would think that something like that would be like among his you know woes <laughs> right or among his warnings yeah, yeah. or among his uh discussions of the la- the end times in in Matthew 25 especially five. if
1: you have a radical falling away that begins at best within 3 centuries of um of the of yeah. the crucifixion and resurrection, and then goes on all the way till the 16th century. I mean, that's a lot of time. Well, I think of where St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 7 and 8, interesting little passage. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? which I draw from, I understand he's talking about gifts. He's talking about tongues speaking in the church in the context. But, but the question that comes from it for me is this, how could an ordinary disciple of Christ ever have certainty that the system of Christian doctrine he's being taught is the system that was taught by the apostles and received by the early church? Is it the Christian's lot, in other words, to simply accept whatever his particular denomination happens to be teaching or Is it his lot to devote his entire life to sifting through the claims of various theologians that represent various denominations, trying to figure out whether the Baptists are right or the Presbyterians or Lutherans or the Church of Christ? Or is it his lot to simply give up on the idea that anyone can know and to simply say doctrine doesn't even matter? With all these questions requiring answers, this is the way I'd sort of tie this up. With all of the questions we've been asking here requiring answers, Isn't it reasonable to believe that the Holy Spirit was in the church, leading the church to preserve and transmit the apostolic faith intact?
0: Short answer would be yes, but now you have to prove it.
1: Yeah, okay, so we got to start with things. Okay, what we're going to do here then is we have spent a good deal of time in this series. We're on episode 11 now, looking at Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium in general. The idea of Scripture, tradition, and magisterium functioning in an authoritative base together. At this point, what we're going to do then is we need to move forward to discuss the role of the Bishop of Rome in the Holy Spirit's leading of the church. Okay, Um, In the greatest work of biblical theology in the early church, titled Against Heresies, written around 189 AD by the great Bishop St. Irenaeus, he comments at the time, so this is near the end of the second century, Irenaeus comments on the unity of the faith that existed at that time. And I want to start here. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit or the reasonableness of believing that the Holy Spirit led the church. We've talked about those great early councils that decided these great bottom line, fundamental presuppositional um, doctrines of the faith. And, and so I want to point out at, at the beginning that St. Irenaeus, writing near the end of the second century, he's commenting on the unity of faith that existed at that time. This is what he says. As I said before, the church... Having received this preaching and this faith from the apostles, although she is disseminated throughout the whole world, yet she guarded it as if she occupied but one house. She likewise believes these things just as if she had but one soul and one and the same heart. Man, that's unity. And harmoniously she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down as if she possessed but one mouth. For although the languages of the world are dissimilar, Yet the import of the tradition is one and the same. For the churches which have been planted in Germany do not believe or hand down anything different, nor do those in Spain, nor those in Gaul, nor those in the East, nor those in Egypt, nor those in Libya, nor those who have been established in the central region of the world, Rome. But as but as the Son, that creature of God, is one and the same throughout the whole world, so also the preaching of the truth shineth everywhere and enlightens all men that are willing to come to a knowledge of the truth saint
0: Irenaeus by the way referred right. to the church over and over again as she uh, for a couple of reasons yeah. one because you know Paul talks about uh the you know idea of Christ and the church being like a marital relationship but also the fact mm-hmm. that she is a singular pronoun um is significant it's not something I mean they're, they're not the church is not the churches aren't the Brides of Christ, right? The church is yeah. the Bride of Christ. Uh, I, again, language yeah. that's you know sort of strange, would have been sort of strange to my ears when I first heard it.
1: Okay, this is what's startling, Matt, at this point, is again, we're near the end of the second century, and St. Irenaeus is able to describe the church as though it is one church at the time, speaking harmoniously as though she had one mouth, whether you're in German. And, and again, there's no internet now. You know, uh, as I've said in the past, barely smoke signals at this time. There's no internet. There's no telephone. There's no way of communicating. And to travel, you have to travel by foot. You have to travel on horseback or by ship. And for him to be able to say that all over the Christian world, there is this unity of faith is is quite extraordinary. Because because I believe that if the early church really had been based on Sola Scriptura and had been practicing, (laughs) that's important, had been practicing Sola Scriptura, well, there would have been a great number of denominations by the end of the second century. you know. But anyway, um, now notice this. A bit later, Irenaeus proceeds to explain the basis for this oneness and his confidence in the truthfulness of the church's teaching. And this is what he says. Okay, so now he's going to talk about the basis of this oneness and the basis of his confidence in the truthfulness of the church. It is within the power of all, therefore, in every church who may wish to see the truth, to contemplate clearly the tradition of the apostles manifested throughout the whole world and we are in a position to reckon up those who were by the apostles instituted bishops in the churches and to demonstrate the succession of these men to our times those who neither taught nor knew of anything like what these heretics rave about since however it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the successions of all the churches, that is the bishops in all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who in whatever manner, whether by an evil self-pleasing, by vainglory, or by blindness and perverse opinion, assemble in unauthorized meetings by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient, and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. As also, by pointing out, the faith preached to men, which comes down to our time by means of the successions of the bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority.
0: So Ken, when I read stuff like this, um, and read not just the information that is being uh, disseminated by Irenaeus here, Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, specifically the tone, it reminded me of St. Paul and in a specific way uh, connected to what you and I have been talking about in terms of the oral tradition and the the written Mm -hmm. word. So often when Paul's tone comes across, it is, I have told so many of you these things in person, but let me just remind you, because Mm -hmm. it seems like some of you need a good reminder of this. Irenaeus seems to be presuming that everybody already kind of knows this, but we just need to remind each other. How important this all is. This is not, Irenaeus is not talking as though any of this is new information Mm -hmm. uh, to the church. You know, this is like him basically saying, this is how it is. And this is why it's important for us to stand strong around it. Um, Again, that sort of presumption that his audience has a sense of what he's already talking about.
1: Yeah, because everyone everywhere believes the same things. He does refer to some who are meeting in unauthorized gatherings, so these it's got to be referring to some of the heretical sects early on, probably Gnostic sects, because he focuses on Gnosticism. Yeah, he's, a lot he's hard on the Gnostics and against
0: heresies. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, in this book, yeah, that, that's right. But but yeah, there's this assumption of of a oneness everywhere. But what he's doing now is when he begins to talk about the the basis for this oneness and the basis of his confidence that that the church's one teaching is true, he goes to the succession of bishops, and he goes especially to the succession of bishops in the church of Rome. Okay, at at this point, in fact, he goes on, and we, we won't read it, but he goes on to list the bishops of the church in Rome from the time of Peter and Paul to the present. And then he concludes, In this order and by this succession, the ecclesiastical tradition from the apostles and the preaching of the truth. Again, what you said, it was what was taught them. It's what they know. The tradition of the apostles, the preaching of the truth have come down to us by this succession. And this is most abundant proof that there is one and the same vivifying faith which has been preserved in the church from the apostles until now and handed down in truth. And I want you to notice I want those listening, watching to notice, rather than focusing on the Holy Spirit's role in preserving the apostolic faith, although, as we saw last week, Irenaeus firmly believes this, but rather than focusing on the Holy Spirit's role, he focuses here on the instrument, that's the word I'll use, the instrument by which the Holy Spirit preserved the apostolic faith in the church. That is the succession of bishops in the churches and especially the succession of bishops, and the most important church of all, the Church of Rome, where he says, I'll read it again, for it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority. And this is where we begin the question. The the big question we're beginning to talk about now will be, what lies behind this mindset? What lies behind the mindset of Irenaeus that this church, this church of Rome, has this special preeminent authority that is so uh, extraordinary, so important that every other church must agree with it. Why did the early church believe in the preeminent authority of the church of Rome? This is what we're going to begin to look at over the next few weeks, and we have to begin somewhere. So we're going to begin by talking about Peter in the Gospels unless you have an introductory comment.
0: Oh, my introductory comment is just that <laughs> you're about to open up the fire hose about references to Peter in the New Testament, which I think mm. everybody already knows he's one of the main characters. But um, as you're going to point out, I think it's helpful to, yeah. to point out exactly how much of a main character he is.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it's the, you know, the devil's in the details. And I guess in in, the, in this case, the Holy Spirit is in the details. Um, but But I remember how struck I was personally When I began to read the case, uh, the Catholic case for Peter and the papacy, how I I was struck with the simple realization of just how prominent Peter is in the Gospels and then in the New Testament in general. I mean, I knew, like you said, I mean, I knew that Peter was prominent, but not really. Okay. Let's begin then with with some facts and figures from the New Testament. And just listen to these because cumulatively they build a case. First, while Peter is referred to 191 times in the New Testament, sometimes by Peter, other times by Simon or by Cephas, while Peter is referred to 191 times in the New Testament, in second place comes John, mentioned a mere 29 times. After this comes James, the brother of John, 24 times. Judas, 23 occurrences. Philip, 6. And the others, less than that. So again, I knew Peter was prominent, but if you had asked me, I would not have said, and I had no idea that Peter is actually mentioned almost seven times as often as his closest runner-up among the 12. Okay, secondly, many of the most important stories, as we all know in the Gospels, involve Peter. It's Peter who walks on the water. It's Peter to whom Jesus first appears after the resurrection. It's Peter who denies the Lord three times and then uh, turns around and is restored on the beach three times when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And I could have gone on. Peter is, is prominent in many of the most important stories that we find in the Gospels. Point three, whenever the disciples are listed in the Gospels, Peter is listed first. And, and although Peter and Andrew were the first disciples called, it, it's very clear that these listings aren't merely numerical because in each of them, while Peter's listed first, Guess who's listed la- listed last?
0: No, well, that would be Judas. Judas. Well, Judas. it's not even that Peter's listed first; it's that he's pointed out in the text, the you know that he is listed first. Like they even say, yeah, yeah, yeah. first there was Peter, yeah. and then there were yeah. all these other guys, and last there was Judas." And the mi- the middle order mixes yeah. up, but they always point out that Peter's first, uh, and that yeah, word listen, first.
1: Listen to the account from Matthew chapter ten. The names of the twelve apostles were these: first. Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, the Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaan, and Judas Iscariot, last, who betrayed him. Now, the same Greek word that is translated first here is the Greek word protos, and it means first, but it doesn't simply mean first numerically. It can mean that, but it can mean more than that. This same Greek word occurs in Matthew 20, verse 27, where Jesus said, whoever would be first among you must become your slave and the word here is he, he, whoever would want to be chief among you whoever wants to be the leader the boss whoever wants to be first in rank should become your slave the word is indicating rank in matthew 10 among the 12 jesus is first in rank and i think you make a good and although a subtle point that it's not just that he's listed first but that he's mentioned as li- being listed first that's a that's a good point okay four in fact, sometimes the 12 apostles are referred to in the Gospels simply as Peter and those with him. That's Mark 1, 36, Luke 9, 32, and there are a couple of others as well. I mean, that that's important, you know, that instead of, instead of uh, the text saying and the 12 apostles did this or that, instead it will say Peter and those with him. And it's not referring to some other people that were with him, but it's re- referring to the other apostles that are with him. So Jesus... I mean, Peter and those with him. The angel at the tomb, for instance, tells the woman, go and tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going ahead of them to Galilee. That's in Mark 16, 7. Um, Point five, it's Peter who often speaks for the disciples as a group. It's Peter who is treated by outsiders as representative of the group. For instance, in Matthew 17, 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, does not your teacher pay the tax? We, we find Peter in this role in the Gospels as representing the 12 um, to those on the outside and representing the 12 within. He's the one who asks Jesus questions that are on the minds of all of the apostles and so forth.
0: Yeah, I, a couple, just a little point on that, yeah. actually. Um, I, I would refer people, uh, Joe Heschmeier uh, from Catholic Answers has a, a relatively new book. It's just called Pope Peter. And uh, he actually gets into that issue of the temple tax and, and into some of the language of what's going on there, and you know, not to spoil too much of Joe's argument, but within all of that, there's this sense as though the people come to Peter as though to say, "Well, you're the vicar of this guy, you know? <laughs> well, you're the you're the spokesperson. You're the one who is his representative before us. You know yeah. what? Yeah. I mean, the, the kind of language that we use about the well, I said I wasn't yeah. going to use the p the other p word, the p o p e, right? The kind of language you use about that guy yeah, now, yeah, so."
1: Yeah, well, that's a good point. Yeah, he's recognized as being the representative in a sense. So so again, just kind of pull this together. Peter referred to seven times, I mean, almost seven times as often as the nearest runner-up. Peter involved in the most important stories in the Gospels often. Peter listed first in every listing of the apostles. The 12 disciples are often referred to as simply Peter and those with him. And I believe, I don't know where it is right now, but I believe there's one passage in which it says Peter and the 11, you know? So Peter is the leader. It's like it's Bob Seger and
0: the Silver Bullet Band. Like nobody even knows who right. the other guys are. Steve yeah. Miller Band, same thing. Peter, you know?
1: Peter appears as speaking up for the disciples, asking questions for the disciples, being treated by outsiders as a representative of the disciples. And then sixth point, it's clear from the four Gospels that within the larger circle of the 12, there was an inner circle, comprised of Peter, James, and John. And notice, whenever this inner circle is mentioned, Peter again is named first. In Mark 5, 37, we read that Jesus, quote, allowed no one to follow him into the house of Jairus except Peter, James, and John. At the same time, um, at the time of the transfiguration, we read in Mark 9:2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up onto a mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. I mean, this kind of thing occurs a, a number of times in the Gospels, where even the inner circle, even when the inner circle is being named, Peter is named first. And anyway, on and on it goes. By, really, by whatever metric you want to apply or use, Peter's prominence in the Gospels is really extraordinary and beyond doubt. And, and, and here's the thing that struck me about it, Matt, when I began to study these things and these numbers were hitting me and I was beginning to see it. And, and this is what still strikes me. And I, again, this may be a subtle point, but these gospel accounts are being written 30 years, 40, maybe 50 years after the crucifixion, okay? They're being written decades later. In other words, the prominence of Peter in the gospels tells us something about the mindset of the gospel authors 30 40 and 50 years afterward it it, it it reveals to us their mindset that in their minds Peter is the most important of the 12 and the way they write the gospels reflects it um, i have an illustration to try and drive this home so so hear me out okay i'm an old guy that which means i grew up well a little bit in the 50s even but i i grew up in the 60s and i grew up as a musician as you grew up a musician as well okay so Imagine that I write a book about the music of the 60s. So I'm writing it some decades later. Imagine that you read my book and you notice that I, while I mentioned the Beatles 191 times, the closest second in my book is the Rolling Stones, you know, 29 times, and followed by the Beach Boys 24 times, and all the way down to Freddy and the Dreamers once and Herman's Hermits twice, okay? Okay, by this fact alone, here's my question. What, what do you know? And I don't, I don't mean by that. What do you know about the music of the '60s? What I mean is, what do you know about me? And the answer is pretty simple. What you know about me is that when I look back on the music of the '60s, the Beatles are far and away the most important musical influence in uh, in the rock music, at least, of the '60s. Well, Ken, that's just one. That's what you know.
0: That's one man's opinion. Now, let's say we only have four accounts of music from the 60s, and all oh, and, they, and, they all, and all four of them agree that the Beatles are the most important and preeminent act of the 60s. They'd all be wrong, but that would tell us about what everybody well, thought sly, in that era.
1: Well, you're a sly guy, and so I don't know whether Seth should ring the bell for the good point you made or for the heresy of saying that they're all wrong. Okay, but, My answer when they say but, Beatles or Stones but, is the kinks. The kinks... Uh, Girl, you really got me going. Isn't and, 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 that, much what, and much more. And much more. Okay. All right. But, but let's apply the analogy. Let's apply the illustration. What we know from what we can see in the Gospels is that for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, living and writing decades after the events that they're recording, Peter was first. Peter was the most important of the apostles. Peter is the leader under Jesus of the 12 apostles we can see that in their eyes, Peter was most important. How come <laughs> that's, that's where we need to go. Why do they view it this way next week? What we're going to do is we're going to move forward from the gospels into the book of acts where we're, where we are going to see that Peter really was first among the apostles. And we see him functioning in that role in the early church.
0: And, uh, That's great that we're mentioning now that we're going to mention it next week because a lot of people are probably saying, well, you haven't even talked about what's going on in the book of Acts. Luke is writing about Paul most of the time. Well, that's because Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, among other things that we'll get into. Luke wasn't a traveling companion of Peter, right? If he was a traveling companion of Peter, we'd have a very different So when Luke hooks up
1: with Paul, the stories about him and Paul and their travels and their journeys, yeah. Yeah.
0: Excellent. And, of course, uh, as you're bringing all this up, I— you know, if we're going to talk about authority and the Pope and everything, I'm glad we didn't dwell too much on Herman Hermits because—
1: You said the word.
0: Oh, I did say the—I said the magic word.
1: But— Okay, what about Hermits Hermits? I was just
0: going to say, you know, because then we'd have to talk about, you know, the English Reformation and, uh, you know— the, I'm Henry
1: the Eighth, I am. Yeah. Henry the Eighth, I am, I am. Although I now that I think about— I to the widow next door. She's been married seven times before, and everyone now, was an Henry. Now, hang on a second. She wouldn't have a Willie or a Sam. But i I'm if, an eighth old man, I'm Henry. Henry Eighth, I am. But if am.
0: she was the one who was married seven times before, wouldn't that make her the Henry the Eighth in this case?
1: Um, Henry VIII, I am. I, am. I, I don't know. I guess he I is
0: technically thinking. the eighth Henry, oh. according to the song.
1: Well, maybe he's a bad theologian. Maybe, you know, the guy who wrote that song. But I got to say... Do you have any final words as a as a heretic? I mean, as the heretic you appear to be.
0: No, I don't. I mean, because I'll if
1: you actually think the Kinks were better than the Beatles, then your soul is kinked. Oh, in some desperately <laughs> some desperately bent bent fashion.
0: Oh, uh, come on. This is uh, Ken. We're recording this kinks? on a on a Sunday on a sunny afternoon. I mean, I don't know. In the summertime, how can I? I don't know.
1: It's not summer. I guess it is technically. No, it's not.
0: It's unofficially summer.
1: Summer starts on June 20th. It's only like June something else.
0: (laughs) It is. Either way, this seems as good a time as any to end this episode before Ken and I just come to fisticuffs over... We can't.
1: You're in Washington, D.C., and I'm here in California. Verbal
0: fisticuffs over 60s rock canon and over what time of year it going
1: We'll be the the closest we've ever come to Twitter. (laughs) In the
0: meantime... (laughs) Uh, please come visit us at chnetwork.org and especially at community.chnetwork.org where we have our online community where we are much more civil to one another mm-hmm. than we have been here in this final exchange. Again, we'd love to hear from you if you have comments and thoughts on the things that we've discussed here. If you want us to discuss other things that we haven't covered yet, uh, we got a lot more to say about Peter and uh, that title that his successors have. So, I'm Matt Not to Swain. Not
1: the Iron butter- Butterfly. Well, no. then we have to go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. We're you talking about that.
0: Uh, Ken, always a pleasure. We'll talk to you next week.
1: In a gata Davida.
0: <laughs> Don't you know that I love you, Ken?
1: See you later.